My name is Scott Irwin. I have three T's in my name apparently tonight. Um, not just one like normal, but three T's. And, you know, it's, in, it's the three T's of the cross. I don't know. Who, who wrote this? Who was it? Jaron. That's right. So, we're glad you're here. So, we have, we have a, a really interesting thing that's happening tonight in Genesis 15 is where we're at. Um, I know if there's a few of you that are new, and, and so I want to explain a little bit of what we do. Um, but our, our really our desire for, for you being here and, and for what we do on Thursday nights is um, to teach the Bible in such a way that would help you understand how to study it on your own, how to read it and understand it on your own. Um, because I know that that's a, like, it's a difficult thing to pick this Bible up and read it and go, okay, what the heck is this about? Why does this matter? And so we really want to break it down for you and, and, and walk through a process that, that we believe in. Um, and a lot of it just starts with just recognizing like this, this book was written not to us, but to a, uh, by a specific author to a specific audience. And so we want to try to understand what, what they understood. What was, a, what was the author's intended meaning? And what did the audience know that they were talking about? And so we want to try to understand what it meant for them in order to understand what it kind of means for everyone, and then we can now understand what it means for us in 2018. So that's, a, that's the process that we walk through, and, and so I'm going to teach through here in just a second, just teach through the text and kind of walk through the story and, and what's happening here in Genesis 15 through 17, and then Drew's going to get up and kind of help us see a bigger theme and a bigger, bigger idea that really does actually impact us and help us understand the way God works and in, in, in our relationship with Him. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, um, that we get to open it up and, and, and study it, God. And I pray more than us just examining it, God, that you would use it to examine us, that you would use your word to, um, to break through to us, to, to interrupt our life, to, um, to help us see you and, and understand who you are. And so, God, God, I pray that you would use our time tonight to further the things that you're wanting to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to recap, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. Uh, we've, been in, we've been in Genesis this whole year. Um, the first 11 chapters covers what we believe to be a, approximately 4,000 years of history. Okay, so it's a lot. So, so really, chapters 1 through 4, you get to see this one family. And you get to see how sin doesn't just ruin, but destroy um, a family. And, and then you see the progression of that sin build up all the way to the flood, and then all the way to Genesis 11, where God kind of disperses, and, and, then, and then you see God, God reaching down. We talked about God being the missionary God in Genesis 12, and going out, and calling Abram, this, this pagan from this land of Ur, and his family. He was not following God at the time. He was worshiping other gods, and God reached down and called him out, and so so in Genesis 12, uh, what we find is, is Abram is with his, his father's household, and they're in this, this town called Haran, and then his father dies, and Abram, he, God says, he tells Abram, I want you to take you, your family, 
and to travel to a land that I'll show you. And so he does. He leaves and goes down into the land that we know of now as Israel. He, he stops in Bethel. He, he builds an altar. Um, and God says, this is the land that I'm going to give you and your offspring. And then he continues on and there's this famine. And so he has to, he has to flee and kind of go into Egypt to, um, really, to get food, to feed his family. And so it's in Egypt that he goes and he, he, uh, he decides to lie about Sarai being his sister and, and so, that, so that they don't kill him and take her. And so instead, they go, oh, she's your sister. She's beautiful. Pharaoh takes her as, as his wife and blesses Abram with all this stuff. And then God causes a plague in, Agro, uh, in Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh realizes that this is um, Abram's wife and says, why'd you do this? Now take your wife and get out of here. You and all your stuff, go. Just lets him leave with all his stuff. So now he's heading back out of Egypt, and he goes right back into the land that God is promising him. And... But this time, him and his nephew, Lot, both of them had enough land and people and, and, and property or things or whatever that, that the, the land couldn't sustain both families. And so Abram says, Lot, you can pick whatever you want. You look to your left, to your right, east, west, whatever. You pick whatever. Lot decides to go east. Abram stays right where God had promised him originally, which is this land in Israel that we know of now. And um, Lot gets captured. He, he goes and lands kind of near Sodom. These four kings from the north come down, destroy these other five kings, and Sodom is one of them. And so Lot and all his family get taken captive by these four kings up north. Abram finds out about it, um, has 318 of his trained men go up and defeat these four kings and come back with all this stuff and, and Lot and all his family. And kind of rescues him. And on his way back, okay, this is Genesis 14 now. On his way back, he, he comes across these two kings. Um, one king is the king of Sodom. And he's excited to see Abram. And he's and he excited to see all the stuff that Abram took back from them. That these kings had taken from Sodom. The other king is this mysterious king called Melchizedek. And we didn't get to talk about Melchizedek last week, or the, our last time here. I think, this, I think a lot of your table groups got to. But, but Melchizedek is this really interesting figure. He's the king of Salem. We don't really exactly know what that is. It most likely is Jerusalem, to spell the same. Um, but it says he's the king of Salem, and it says he's also the priest of the God Most High. It's the first time that phrase, God Most High, is mentioned in the Bible. And, and Melchizedek is the priest of the God Most High. And guess what he brings to Abram? Bread and wine. So you have this, this, this king-like priest bringing bread and wine um, to, this, to this exchange. And I, I don't know if you know much of, of the story of Jesus, um, but it's pretty interesting and fascinating. It's no wonder why David picks up on this in Psalm 110. He talks about this, the, the, this, the priestly order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is this mysterious figure that, so we know God is reaching and dealing, doing things with Abram, but all of a sudden, who, who's this Melchizedek? It's, it's almost like, wait a minute, so God is doing other things too? He's not just working with this one guy, he's doing other things as well? And so the Bible picks up on this, this idea of Melchizedek being this mysterious, godly, um, priest-like king. And in the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, 
likens this, this person to Jesus and says, see, Jesus is in the same way. You, you, guys, you guys thought you had this figured out, but you didn't see, you, didn't, you, you should have seen this coming and you didn't. You, you didn't realize how big God is. And, you, and so, so it's no wonder that Jesus is kind of likened to this priestly king, Melchizedek. And then, so Abram sees Melchizedek and, and recognizes who he is and recognizes he's a man of God and pays a tithe to him. And then when Sodom, the king of Sodom comes over, he's like, hey, Abram, we're so glad you're here. And by the way, keep all the stuff you got. That's fine. Keep it all. You, you deserve it. And Abram's like, no, 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 no. I don't want any sort of, any sort of alliance with you because you're a pagan king. I don't want, I don't want you to think that you built, helped build me. So I'm giving it all back to you, and I just want Lot and his family um, to be taken care of. And so he basically denies allegiance with Sodom and pays a tithe to Melchizedek. And so it's, it's in the very next chapter that God speaks in a vision. And so I've wondered, like, what, okay, why, why, you know, from chapter 5 through 11, we're covering thousands of years and then all of a sudden we slow down real quick and, and we're zooming in on like almost every day of Abraham's life, of Abram's life. Why is that? And again, it's because at the very beginning we talked about Genesis is, is this, this ancient manuscript that was written to the people of Israel to help, to help them understand their covenant relationship with God. And so what we're entering into in chapter 15 and 17 is is a description of this covenant. And so we get to see, we get to talk about what is, what is a covenant? This is a big thing. It's a big deal in the Bible, this word covenant. And so we'll get to see uh, God's covenant with Abram and how it plays out. So my reader, Chance the Rapper here, um, could you read 15, 1 through 6, please? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay. So, this is the only time that God appears to Abram in a vision. He appears to him in a vision, and he says, what? He says, I am your shield. He says, and your reward will be great. So, I can't help but think there's a connection between the fact that he just went into battle, he just went and defeated these kings, and, and he's saying, I'm your shield. Like, I'm the one protecting you. I don't want you to think that you're doing this on your own. Um, I, I, that's my guess. There's really no way of knowing what exactly he means by that, but I think that makes sense in the context. Then he says, your reward is going to be great. Some of your translations, I actually like this translation better. I just don't think it's as accurate. It says, I, I am your shield and your very great reward. In other words, like I'm your reward. Having me is, is the reward. I, I think it's probably better translated like what the ESV does, which is, and your reward will be great because the very next thing Abram says is, what reward? Like, where is my reward? Where is this reward? You promised that I'm going to be, like he says in chapter 12, I'm going to make nations out of you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
And so far, you know, I don't have a son. Like, I don't, this, this guy, this is some dude from Damascus is going to get all my stuff. Like, where's my son? That you've, that this, where's this coming from? And so he says, no, it's not going to be this guy. It's going to be, a, it's going to be your son. In fact, go outside and look up and, and count the stars. And you can't count them because there's too many. And that's how many offspring you're going to have. And so, and then it says, then this line says, and Abram believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. Now, um, this is a this is a big moment. Okay, there's now we've got Melchizedek in chapter 14, and then this verse right here. Two big themes that that are being introduced to us. And and Drew's gonna help break some of this down a little bit, but I want you to see like this is a big deal, this verse, because this introduces something that is going to run throughout the rest of Scripture. This idea that believing and trusting that what God says is true is a really big deal to God. And so, what, what isn't happening here in this verse, this isn't where Moses gets saved, okay? That's language that we use, um, especially if you're Baptist. Um, get saved. This, this is not what's happening with Abram. He's not like, oh, now Abraham's going to be in heaven because of this verse. No, that's not what's happening. What's literally happening is, Abram believed what God said is going to be true. He looked up and he said, wow, that's a lot. So I'm going to have that. If you said it, that's what I'm going to have. I believe it. And that's, he took God at his word. That's literally what it's, what it's saying. But what um, Romans 4, who quotes this verse, Galatians 3, Paul, in both Romans 4 and Galatians 3, quotes this verse. What Paul says is, he looks back on that verse, he goes, see, it's always been about Faith and trust in what God says is going to, to happen. Faith and trust in what God um, says He's going to do, He's going to do. And says what He promised is, is going to come true. And so it's a really big deal, and we'll, we'll talk a little more about that later. Read, actually no, I'm going to retell, I'm just going to re- recap. So in the next few verses, um, God reminds him that He's going to give him the land. And Abraham's like, how? Like, how are you going to do this? And so God tells him, okay, go grab these five animals. He does. He, um, he splits them in half, okay? And, and he splits the, kills the animals, splits them in half, and separates them. And creates this kind of pathway of dead animals in split in half. That's what's happening here. And so what, what is going on? Like, why is this happening? There's this verse in... Jeremiah 34, 18, it says this, And the men who transgressed my covenant, this is God talking, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So this was, in, in my study and looking, you know, in the, in the history of like this, this time in which this was written in 35 hundred years ago in Mesopotamia, um, there is some evidence to believing that when two people were trying to make a covenant, they would take these, they would take animals, okay, take their own livestock, which was, which was their livelihood and their food, and so this was an expensive thing to do, and they would kill them, cut them in half, and these two people would say, okay, we're going to make a covenant together, and we're going to walk in between it. We're going to walk this path. Because, one, it's expensive, and two, it's symbolic, that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let whatever, what's happened to these animals happen to me. That's kind of the idea. 
But something interesting and kind of different happens in this case. And so read um, 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back to you in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so we don't, I don't exactly know. I, I, I read this, so when I sit down to study, I, I read through it several times, and then I write down questions that I have, like that, I, okay, I, I, try, I try to read it like I'm reading it for the first time, and go, okay, what the heck is that? You know, what's going on here? And, and that just helps me observe things that I may miss if I just assume I know what, what's going on. And one of the things I've, is this, what is this dreadful and great darkness that, that, that Abram, Abram is entering into? And, and read several different things, and nobody really has a clear answer. But I think the, the best answer that I saw was that there's a connection with what is going to happen to the people of Israel, the suffering that they'll ta- that they'll happen in as in their as their sojourners in this land, and and their servants to this this other people, which we know is going to be Israel several generations from now, and so. I think that might be a little bit of the connection that's happening. Another interesting thing to, to, to note is in verse 16 it says, um, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were a people that they constantly run into. If you, if you just search Amorites, you'll see, especially in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and all these, that, that they're, they're battling with constantly. And what's interesting is, um, like God knew their sin and yet, and yet let them live in it for years and years, hundreds of years, before he and his people come in and kind of take this land. And so it's, it's, this, it's this idea that when, when God and his people come and battle, you know, the battle of Jericho or all these different places, he's not just hurting innocent people. He's, he's coming in, he's, he's, he's coming in with his kingdom, which is to, to live and to glorify God, um, and he's interacting with these people who are not. And there's crazy things that they're doing. We're, you know, sacrificing children. And I mean, there's, this was a, th- these were common practices in, this, in these kind of pagan things. And so I just think that verse is in, it's interesting. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is still being patient with them and seeing if they can turn. Uh, read 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, so, and then he, he goes on in 19 to talk about all the different ites, the, the people that are living in this land, the, the land that he's going to give them. So, here's what's interesting about this. This is what different, um, two people walking through the covenant, it's not what happens here. Abram, Abram is asleep. So he's not walking anywhere. And this, this smoking pot and this fire is, is what passes through. And if you know, you know much about the, the rest of the story, you get into the Exodus and it's the smoke and fire become this representation of the presence of God. If the people, anytime they questioned if God was with them, they could just look to the tabernacle and they could see the smoke during the day or fire at night. 
Um, and so right, right here, God is, he's the only one walking through these, this path. He's the only one holding up this covenant. In other words, this is, this is pretty big. This is significant that God is saying, listen, I don't need you to keep your end of the bargain for me to keep my end of the bargain. I'm going to hold this covenant. This, this just depends on me. I, I'm self-dependent here. Which is actually a doctrine that we talk about, or, a, or an attribute of God, is the aseity of God, is his self-reliance, his self-dependence. He doesn't need anyone or anything for him to do what he says he's going to do and to be who he says he's going to be. So, we come to the end of chapters 12 through 15, and, and for the most part, we're, we're de- dealing with issues about occupying the land that seems to be a predominant um, theme that's happening in these, in, this, in, in these chapters, and Lot is somewhat of an obstacle. And as we enter into 16 through 18, um, we see issues related to establishing Abram's promised family. And then this, this character named Ishmael, is going to be an obstacle. So, um, in chapter 16, I'm just going to recap it um, because we're going to spend, we might spend a little more time in it next week when we talk about the birth of Isaac. But in chapter, so, so God has promised this, has made this covenant with, with Abram about the land. He's already told him that he's going to be a father of, of you know, he's going to have many nations and great nation come from him. When, when Abram was called, he was 75 years old. And then 10 years go by, and there's no son. In chapter 16, it shows right off the bat, and, and Sarai, she's, she's the first name mentioned. And so Sarah becomes impatient, and she wants a son. And so she takes matters in her own hands, and she says to Abram, take my Egyptian servant, Hagar, have her, have a son with her. That's how I'm going to get a son. And Abram says, whatever. And he does it. He actually... It says in um, verse 2, the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That's key. That's a, that's a literary key. Like the author is helping you see, wait, God told him this, and he's listening to who? Um, so you, you see this pattern already, right? So the, in Genesis chapter 3, um, God had told Adam, you can eat of any tree, don't eat of this one tree. Eve says, Eve sees the tree, it's good, it looks good to her eyes. She takes it and she eats it and she gives it to her husband and he, he does too. In other words, he listened to her, he didn't listen to God. And so this isn't, a, this isn't a, an issue about women, this is an issue, this is a human condition. This is a pattern that we've, we talked a little bit about that's, get, that comes up over and over in the Bible is when we see what we want, and we take what we want, and we ignore what God wants. And so that's happening here. So th- this is what we talked about. Abraham is not the hero of this story at all. He, so you see him believing God in, in chapter 15, verse 6, but then in the very next, very next chapter, he's, he's not listening to God anymore. He's listening to um, his wife. He's listening to another plan. He's taking matters in his own hands. And he does. And then drama ensues. Uh, Hagar gets pregnant. She looks to Sarai with contempt. Sarah treats her harshly. Hagar flees. God appears to her, calls her back, promises these things about her son. She goes back and she, she has this son. And then in verse 15 of chapter 16, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son 
And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So now it's been 11 years, and he has, finally has a son, and his name is Ishmael. The very next verse, Abram's 99 years old. So do the math. How many years is that? Okay. That was very quick. Who said that? Look at you. Math major. Um, so 13 years go by, and there's no reason to believe Abram is feeling guilty about having a son with Hagar. In fact, in fact I, I kind of used to think that, but the more I've read and studied it, I think Abram's going, no, I finally got my son. Now I know who, how this is going to happen. It's going to be Ishmael. and th- He's 13 years old, and this is great. It's, I, I don't think Abram is like going, oh, man. I listened to my wife and not to God, and now I have the son, and where's God? He's been silent. This, you know, it's been 13 years. No, he's, I think he's thinking, I got my son, so this is how it's going to be. But God has another plan. So read, um, let's see, read through 8, 1 through 8. 17? Yeah, 17, 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay. So Abram's 99 years old. Um, It's been 24 years since he was originally called. And so I... I just want you to think about that. How many of you are 24 years old or older in this room? Wow, there are three of us. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So I know, I know some of you are going, listen, I prayed to God last month about what I'm supposed to do with my life, and I haven't heard anything yet. What, what am I supposed to do? What career am I supposed What classes am I supposed to take? What am I, Right? Like 24 years of, of, okay, I'm going to go to where? Some land? What? And follow you and trust you and wait on you. And such is the timing of God. And so Abram's waiting 24 years, um, probably thinking for the last 13 years that this is now maybe not what God had in mind, but he'll use it. Um, and, and, and you need to understand, I, I read several pages in this commentary about Abram's understanding of, of God at the, in this time and how it's developing. And that's, that's something we don't have time to get into, but it's, it's kind of an interesting idea. It's not like God just shows up and, and Abram's like, oh, Trinity, oh, graceful, gracious and merciful and, and loving and caring. And, you know, it, he doesn't have those concepts that we have. Like we, we get to we get to stand on the shoulders of thousands of years of understanding, but Abram is just going, uh, okay, so 
you want me to, you're going to do this, that sounds great, but what, what's in it? What do I got to do? And what's, right? There's a lot that Abram's fi- figuring out with God, and, and God is revealing himself to him, and, and, and essentially to us as well. Um, so, he goes in, and I love this. God says, I am God Almighty. Again, the second time this phrase, God Almighty. It's where we get the idea that God is all-powerful. It's where this word, that word comes from. Um, another attribute of God. He says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a, uh, my covenant with you and multiply you. And at this, what does Abram do? What does he do right after that? He does what? Look, look at, don't look at me, look at the verse. What does it, what does it say he did? Verse 3. He fell on his face. I, I, so he fell on his face. That, don't, don't read past that too quickly. Um, in fact, actually, if you want, it's a really kind of a good little to, to, um, to go to some concordance and just to type in the word either face down or fell on his face or some, some phrase like that and look up all the times in which people, when they encounter God, they can't help but fall on their face before him. And so you have this you know, God is speaking thing, happening, and, and Abram is going, okay, I'm here, I'm, I'm all in, I, I'm, I'm with you. And he goes, and he tells him these, these things. Um, he says, God claims that he's almighty. He, um, he changes Abram's name from an exalted father to a father of many nations, many nations, um, he promises that he will be a father of many nations and that kings will come from him. And then he says that this covenant that he's establishing with him is an everlasting covenant. That he's establishing not just with him, but with his offspring throughout all generations. Okay? Everlasting covenant is the phrase. And then, in, and then the, sec, the next one is that this, what he's giving us, him, the land that he's giving them, is not just for him, but his offspring is an everlasting possession. So that those two phrases, everlasting covenant and everlasting possession, are things that, that, that God is promising to Abram here. And then he gives them a sign of this covenant relationship in these next verses that is possibly the weirdest religious practice ever. So read um, verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I think the word cut off is a little punny. Um, (laughs) But anyway, I had to say it. So, so, Kelsey would be really proud, wouldn't she? She would be so proud. She's the queen of puns. Um, so that's a weird command um, and a weird covenant practice or weird sign of the covenant. 
So Drew's going to get up here in a little bit and talk more about this practice and this sign and, and, and its implications. Um, but I, I want you to see that with, with this covenant that God is making with Abram and, and his people and his family is, is a relational thing. So when, when the Bible talks about God being um, a relational God, th- this is what we're talking about. Like, if you read other stories, other epic stories about God and, and the gods, there's not this personal relationship. There's not this commitment. There's just people trying to figure out what pleases them and what doesn't please them. God makes it very clear. Like, so a covenant... Um, was a relationship established that had blessings and had curses. It had very curses. It had very clear like expectations. This is what you do. This is how you set yourself apart to stay set apart to me. And if you don't do it, this is what will happen. And so God is very clear, and he's and he and he lets them know what's expected. But I want you to see the bigger picture. Sometimes we think the law that God gives to Moses is like this set of rules, and who wants to live by rules, and blah, blah, blah. No. Like, this is a, the law, and, and this covenant that's being established now that eventually grows into a law that, that God gives His people is a very relational thing. It's God saying, this is how you stay in relationship with me. This is how you stay close to me. This is how you stay my people. I chose you. Not because you were amazing, there's all these other ites, and he chose Israelites, right? So they weren't, they weren't amazing. He just, that's, he chose them, the Bible says, because he chose them. And he says, but I'm telling you, this is how you stay in relationship with me. And, and that same God wants the same kind of relationship with you as well. And there's a very clear way in Jesus that we can do that. So we're going to take a break, and then Drew's going to get up and talk about the weirdest religious practice ever. Take a break. All right. Um, make sure. Yep. Okay. So, summer before summer before my senior year of college, I spent uh, eight weeks over in Turkey, uh, doing kind of working with some missionaries there and working with a camp, and, and also even just kind of exploring the possibility of of maybe going and living that direction after I finished school. And specifically, we spent one week of that time over in northern Cyprus. That was the, one of the areas that we were thinking about the possibility of some of us moving and, and would later move to for a time. But we went to uh, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus is what it's called. And it's mostly made up of a, of a Turkish Cypriot population. And uh, we were over there in this city called Girne and staying at this hotel while we were over there and they had this little kind of outdoor patio restaurant connected to the hotel over uh, in that spot. So we were out there one night hanging out, me and uh, a guy from my church, actually a few people from my church and then this missionary that we were there with. And while we're out there in the middle of it, there's this giant party going on at this patio thing, like all these people, like more than it seems like maybe could even be staying at the motel. Like I think a lot of like local people um, there at this party. And there's music playing, uh, there's a band, and, and there's a lot of festivities, and there's uh, gifts. And, and it seems to be for this boy 
who's sitting there kind of in the middle, but something about it seemed weird for a birthday party. Um, first of all, the boy was sitting on a throne, um, and he had like a little cape, and he had like a crown on, and, and so like, and, and everyone is celebrating this kid, and, and, and people are bringing gifts to him and, and all this stuff. Um, but the other thing I noticed is that the boy didn't look super excited. Um, in fact, he just kind of sat there, quiet and wide-eyed, on the throne um, for the whole time. I, he was probably six, seven, eight years old. And, and I was going, man, this is a weird kind of like, what is going on here? What's, what's? And so I turned the mystery. I'm like, what is happening? Um, why, why is this kid on the throne? Why is everyone giving him presents? And why is he not happy about it? And uh, he said to me, oh, that's, that's a circumcision party right there. And I was like, oh, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, that's a thing here. Like, they don't, they don't do circumcision at like eight days old or infancy. They do it at a given point, a lot of times around eight years old, and it kind of varies. Um, and it is a huge ordeal. And so you bring, you like invite everyone you know, and it becomes this huge celebration. And they dress the kid up. And sometimes like he'll even have like on his hat, like this crown thing, like, I, can, I don't know the word, um, about to be circumcised or something. I don't think it says that, but like a, a hat, like de- declaring that this is what this boy is, that this is this special thing. Sometimes they'll get like a horse and he'll ride like horseback through like kind of the street and all this stuff. And I just remember thinking, this is such a bizarre thing. Um, and, and it seems so odd, something to us that, yes, circumcision is a regular practice in the States, but it's not something we, like, advertise. Um, it's not something we just, like, talk openly about, and it's definitely not something that you invite all your friends and family to when it happens. Um, but over there, it's not that odd or that weird. And, and that is actually the case with that part of the world um, in this area with a lot of things, that this this practice of circumcision is, yes, it's, it's something kind of medical that's practiced in the States quite often, but really it just kind of happens at infancy, and that's it. We kind of push away. But the rest of the world, I say the rest of the world, a lot of parts of the world are not uncomfortable talking about circumcision. It's not a weird deal to not only talk about, but to celebrate and to invite people to. I don't think they are actually, they, I don't think the actual operation took place there at the hotel, just so you know. Um, but like in preparation for it, by the way, side note, and this is, does not matter at all, but at one point, and most of these people don't speak English, so I don't think they knew, but the band that was there, I kid you not, was playing the song Smooth Operator during <laughs> the thing. <laughs> I kid you not. And I do not think they knew what they were doing when they were doing it, but um, thought that was hilarious. So most of the world... Um, I say these parts of the world, including the Jewish world, this is not a weird thing for them to think about or talk about. And it's become a thing, man, studying, uh, studying the Bible. What, what I get to do is teach and study the Bible and read through it. And, and so it's one of those things that is not, it's kind of grown pretty comfortable for me to talk about. Uh, Jim Johnson walked in my office this week while I was studying. He asked me what I was up to. And I just said, man, I would have never guessed when I was a kid 
that I would know so much about Jewish circumcision by the time I was older, that I would spend so much time studying and reading it. It's just because it plays out so much in the culture and it plays out so much in the scriptures. It's something um, that, that they're comfortable talking about. And so tonight we're going to talk about what I know you guys have all been waiting for since like you started coming to table. First night, I know you were thinking, when are we going to cover the history of circumcision? Well, tonight is your lucky night, because that's what we're doing tonight. Um, Scott said, we, we, wanna, we want you to be able to not just learn from the Bible, we want you to learn about studying the Bible. One of the important practices for studying the scriptures and studying ideas is that we observe um, parallel passages, or this process could also be called intercontextualization, if you want to sound fancy. Um, but it is... It's this concept that when you find an idea in Scripture um, that you try to, you might find it from a text like Genesis 17 talking about it, but you, you want to then go and look at as many different texts as you can that talk about that idea in order. It's kind of like taking a, a diamond or a jewel and turning it and, and exploring the, the, the many facets of it so that you can get a better grasp of it. And so we're going to do a little bit of that tonight, kind of historically, kind of understanding what this was viewed as. So, so I want to walk you through a number of the key moments in the scriptures and in the history, not all of them are actually in the scriptures, but in the history of the Jewish people um, when it comes to this idea of circumcision and, and what it is and its importance. So the first one we just talked about is in Genesis 17 where God comes to Abraham and he says, I, I've made a covenant with you. You are going to be mine and your people are going to be my people. Um, but as a part of that covenant, as entry into that covenant, I am asking this, that you will enter in through the practice of circumcision, that that will be passed on um, from male to male all the way down. And this is the sign that you are my people. This is the sign that you are in this covenant with me. Now, the Jews and Abraham and his family are not the first people to practice circumcision. This is actually, in this part of the world, uh, not uncommon. Uh, there were a number of different people, groups, and nations that would practice it for different reasons. Um, the Egyptians uh, appears that in some places and parts of Egypt that uh, for like priests working in temples, like that that was something that happened, an act of kind of a ritual purification um, to enter into the priesthood. For a number of other places, kind of like in, uh, in northern Cyprus and in Turkey, it was somewhat of a rite of manhood that when a boy got to a certain age, a lot of times like puberty or whatever, that circumcision would take place as a way of kind of saying you've moved into this next phase of life. In some cultures around this time, actually, it took place uh, at the time of marriage. And, and this is where it gets really weird. For a number of those uh, cultures, actually, the people who practiced it um, were the groom's uh, future in-laws. So like his future father-in-law and brother-in-laws were the ones who did that, which just sounds like a really bad idea. Um, but that's, that's like what, that's how that uh, worked then. So it wasn't like a crazy thing where this is the first time this has ever been introduced in history when Abraham happens. But what is the very first time is that this is for the first time like a theological issue. This is the first time and this is the only time we know of in this part of the world or anywhere in which this becomes the, the way for someone to be a part of God's people, or a part of a people group, into, to enter into a community covenant relationship with God. This is unique in that way. 
Um, the next kind of big thing we see, actually, there are two dates that try to, when, when scholars try and figure out the date of the Exodus, when Moses led the people out of Exodus, there are these two dates, depending on how you work the timelines and, and how you look at archaeology and all those things, 1446-ish and 1260-ish are kind of the main two dates that kind of get looked at when they do that. So I never know which one to put. I always just end up putting both. But there's this weird little story in Exodus 4 that does not get told in Sunday school classes. Um, and it's real short. And God has called Moses to go back to Egypt to set his people free, to bring them out of Egypt and into the land that was promised to Abraham a long time ago. Um, and so Moses goes there. And on the way, it's real brief. We don't even know what exactly it looks like. But on the way... Um, the Lord comes upon Moses and is ready to kill him. Is is kind of like, it says like, I, I can't remember what the word, came upon him to kill him or to, to, to bring death to him or whatever. And in that moment, what actually is, what, what gets explained, what you understand is Moses has not circumcised his son. And, and so Moses' wife uh, goes and she circumcises his son in the middle of this while Moses is like being about to be like killed. And as soon as that happened, the Lord relents, Yahweh relents from Moses, which seems extreme and seems crazy. But think about the timing of this. Uh, God made this covenant with Abraham a long time ago that I'm going to bring your offspring out of a land of slavery and I'm going to bring this them into this promised land. And but, but part of this covenant is that you will be a circumcised people, that this is going to be your entering into the covenant. Now here, it's finally about to happen. Moses is making his way down to Egypt to fulfill the promise that God has made. And God says before that even starts, um, now we're going to make sure we get it right from the beginning. Uh, that as Moses goes and he's going to set the law before the people and he's going to set the practice, that he is obeying the covenant obligations that God gave to Abraham and to these people long before uh, Moses was ever sent. Next big thing happens 40 years later. So again, you could go 1406 or 1260, but 40 years later, after Moses has brought the people out of Egypt, now he has died and passed on and Joshua has them and they're about to enter into that promised land. But before they do, in Joshua 5, God says, stop. Before anyone goes in there, before you conquer it, before you take it over, every male amongst you must be circumcised. And then it goes on to explain that the first generation that came out of Egypt had actually all been circumcised, but they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And everyone born in that second generation during the period in the wilderness, none of them had actually undergone the practice of circumcision. And so here we are about to go into the land that God has promised to Abraham's people, and none of Abraham's people are, held, are holding up the covenant promises, that they, their end of the bargain. And so God says, no, we're not, you're not going in there until this takes place. And so they stop. And they set up camp for several days and wait until this is finished before they move on into the promised land to do these things. The next big day is not found in your Bibles, um, though if you were Catholic it would be in there. Um, uh, it's from, from the period of the Maccabees. And, and though we don't hold uh, the, the Maccabees uh, the, from the Apocrypha to be like inerrant, uh, we do believe the history there is actually true. I mean, we know actually. We've, we've got archaeology and stuff to show that the history is true. It happens around 167 B.C. And, and during this time, 
Palestine, the region of Palestine, is ruled over by this Seleucid ruler, that is, someone that was from Alexander the Great's empire. Alexander the Great takes over the world. Then after he dies, his kingdom is divided up into four parts. One of those parts is this Seleucid dynasty that rules over the area of Palestine. And this king comes to power there by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes, in a... um, in a movement to try and consolidate and solidify his empire and make sure that everybody's on, his, on the same page, he undergoes a practice of trying to eradicate Judaism because the Jewish people operate so different from all the other people in the Greek known world um, and they don't play by the same rules and that gets, that, that gets frustrating when you're trying to rule and control these people. And so he goes on a campaign of doing uh, a million atrocities. He takes every bit of the scriptures of the law that he can find and he orders that they be burned. Anyone, anyone who's found possessing the scriptures is sentenced to death. And he goes and he sets up uh, an idol to Zeus in the middle of the temple courts, uh, which is an abomination, and, and sets that up. And he goes and he sacrifices a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar in the temple to the god Zeus. And, and he declares that circumcision, the practice of circumcision, whereby the Jewish people separated themselves from the rest of the world. Say, but by this time, circumcision is not a regular practice. The Jews are like some of the only ones who do it. This marked them as different. And he declares that it is a capital offense. And that anyone who circumcises their child will be put to death. And after a number of these different things, a number of these different attempts to try and rid the earth of Judaism, uh, the people revolt finally. And, and in almost a miraculous fashion, uh, they end up throwing off their oppressors and, and conquering and winning for themselves freedom. But this here ups the ante. Because circumcision isn't just kind of this tradition that got handed down to us. Of course, it was given to us by God, so it's already big. But now you have a generation that was willing to die for that. Um, So the importance and the significance of that as a marker of God's people, this is what sets us apart. This makes us different. This says we are the one true people who belong to the one true God and nobody else does. It's a big deal. And then you have... Roughly, uh, roughly 200 years later, around the 50s A.D., one of the most famous rabbis uh, of the first century was this guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel has a protege, a disciple of his, who begins writing these works, and he starts saying that circumcision doesn't matter at all, that it does not count for anything. Um, and this is radical. And this is not just radical, wow, that's kind of crazy, but, but like verge of like blasphemous, um, verge of like sacrilegious um, to say that this does not matter at all. Are you kidding me? After, after what God said to Abraham, that any male who is not circumcised will be cut off from my people? After the way he came after Moses, after the way they made the entire people group um, in, uh, in Joshua there stop before they went into the promised land, and after the way our grandparents and our great-grandparents were willing to face death over this, and now you're going to come on the scene and you're just going to say, it doesn't matter. Uh, the guy's name, you know, his name is Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul the Apostle. And he writes this phrase, in three different places in his writings, um, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. 
says it in Galatians 5, says it in Galatians 6, says it in 1 Corinthians 7. None of this really matters. Doesn't matter. You want to be circumcised, great. You want to be uncircumcised, great. None of it counts for anything. Um, now, for us, that may not seem like that big of a deal because, you know, our relationship to God doesn't have anything to do with our bodies. It's about our spiritual stuff, which actually is a false idea. It, it does have something to do with our bodies. But, but for us, we go, oh, well, it's, about, it's about, you know, what's on the inside and not what you're doing on the outside. But no, for them, this was a big part of their relationship with God. And, and this was huge for what they uh, believed and what they did. It was huge in their history. So um, our country has been built upon the Constitution. So this was um, put together almost 300 years ago, the Constitution. is kind of what we build our laws and our legal system and our justice system and everything on, this idea of the Constitution put together almost 300 years ago, 1786, I think it is. Uh, and so imagine what happens if somebody just decides one day, the Constitution doesn't matter. If, if someone in our government just says, forget this and throws away, hey, take it or leave it, but we don't really need it. People would be up in arms going, no, 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 you can't, you can't just on a whim chuck something aside that we've been following for 300 years, that we've built our lives around, that we've built our nation around, and after 300 years, just throw that to the side, okay? So, but when Paul writes these words in A.D. 54 and A.D. 50, circumcision has been practiced seven times longer than the Constitution has been in existence for us. For 2,000 years, this has been at like the bedrock of their identity. And here Paul just waltzes in and says, eh, it doesn't really matter. No big deal. Take it or leave it. Whatever you want to do with it. Needless to say, people were not real thrilled with Paul when he said those things. And, and he takes a lot of heat for that. Even Christians aren't really sure if they buy what Paul's saying. In fact, this becomes the first major theological debate and the first major issue of arguments in the church um, for the church as a whole in all of church history is whether or not circumcision matters because for all of history anybody who belonged to God's people practiced circumcision anybody who belonged to God's people was a Jew and the way that you showed that you were a Jew was that you followed these certain Jewish boundary markers. So you were circumcised and you practiced the dietary restrictions. You did not eat unclean food. And you followed like the ritual cleansing and purification. You did all the things necessary to show yourself as a true Jew. And so we know that all God's people in the Old Testament were, were doing all of those things. And then we know that Jesus was doing those things. And then we know that Jesus' disciples were doing those things. And, and all the first Christians were doing those things. And so for, that's all we know is that that's all anyone who has ever been a part of God's people has practiced. And, and so what happens, though, when in Acts 10 the Holy Spirit falls on some Gentiles and all of a sudden we go, well, it seems like maybe they're allowed to be a part of this too. It seems like maybe God is showing us that they can be a part of this. And here's what happens. People go, sweet, fine. Who are we to argue with the Holy Spirit? Yes, the Gentiles can be a part of this, but they're going to have to start following the Jewish rites. They can be a part. They just got to be circumcised to do that. They've just got to start um, like following all our dietary restrictions. They just got to start honoring our holy days and our festivals and all those things. And Paul says, no, 
No, he says it to the Jewish people. He says it to the Christians within the church who try to say that that's a place. He argues um, strongly against those um, that this is not actually God's people are not made up of physical boundary markers. It is not about external things in you that show whether you are or not a people of the God, uh, people belonging to God. Go to Romans 2, and here's one of the places where he makes the big argument. Romans 2. Verse 28. Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, that is, so by Jew, he's just kind of using that word to describe someone who belongs to God. To be part of God's people. So a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he says, circumcision, okay, yeah, I'll give you this. Circumcision matters. He says, just not the kind you're thinking of. The kind of circumcision that marks somebody as belonging to God is a circumcision of the heart. And it is not done by human hands. And it is not according to the letter of the law. It is actually done by something you can't even control. It's done by the Holy Spirit at work in a human being. Um, which, again, sounds beautiful to us. And that's, that's right. It's about the heart, Paul. That's what, that's what really matters. And, and, and for us and in our day and age, that sounds great. But here's the question. Does that fly? Is that, is that, like, where does Paul get that idea? And is he allowed to just come in after 2,000 years and go, really, it's about the heart? Like, let me put it to you this way. Let's say you're driving back this last weekend. You're driving back from Thanksgiving with your family, and uh, you're doing 90 on a 60 in a 65, all right? So 65 on the highway, you're going 90 miles per hour, and a highway patrolman pulls you over and goes, do you have any idea how fast you were going? You were going 90 miles per hour, and then you say, yes, officer, but what you need to know is I was going 65 in my heart. <laughs> and so, really, and, and it's the heart that counts, officer. It's, it's the heart that matters. It's not, it's not about externals. It's not about physical things. So, I was going 65 in my heart, so you should just let me off. Well, is that going to fly? Is that going to work with him? No. No, it does matter. So, so. How does Paul come to the conclusion that out of nowhere he can just start saying, actually, it's just a matter of the heart, and the circumcision thing doesn't matter anymore? How can Paul make this claim? I want to answer that, but first I want to ask, or I want to answer why he makes the claim. This is why Paul says circumcision doesn't matter. Just go one page over to Romans 3, 28 through 30. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, most people, when they read works of the law, they think that means being good, that that's what he's talking about. Actually, when Paul says works of the law, more than likely he's, he's talking about these specific Jewish boundary markers. Um, circumcision, uh, honoring festivals and holy days, um, ritual cleansing, and dietary restrictions. And he says, um, we hold that someone is justified, that is declared righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. 
So Paul says, this is why I tell you circumcision doesn't matter. Because I hold and I believe that a person is declared to be right not by anything they have done physically to themselves or in and of themselves. That they are declared to belong to God not by any specific traditional practices that they've engaged in. They are declared to be right by faith in God and the grace that He gives to them through Jesus Christ. By placing their faith in Jesus. That's why he says um, the things that he says. He's become convinced of this. Um, And this means that not just Jews, but even Gentiles can be included in it. But again, the the question is, how does he come to that conclusion? How does he arrive at this idea that circumcision doesn't matter? Well, he makes kind of a long argument through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Okay, and it's kind of complicated. You can read it. I just want to look at one strand of that argument tonight, real briefly, as we begin to kind of wind down here. Um, one strand that takes place in Romans 4, and the reason why it matters is because the strand he uses to make this argument is directly out of our text tonight, Genesis 15 and 17. So, go over to Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's, that's Genesis 15, 6. You guys just read that. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now he'll, he'll move through a little bit and then he goes down. Go down to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Is this blessing, the blessing he's talking about, is being forgiven of your sins and being declared righteous. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, he goes, when did Genesis 15, 6 take place? Did that happen before Genesis 17 or after? Paul says it happens before. Before circumcision ever enters the picture, God already comes to Abraham and says, I'm in covenant with you. Abraham already places his faith in him, and God already declares, credits that to him as righteousness. Long before circumcision has taken place, Paul says. And then he says in 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. As well, And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was. So, uh, so this is what Paul says. Abraham was in with God, that he had entered into this covenant and was declared, it was credited to him as righteousness before circumcision ever took place. And that, Paul says, is why I believe that at the foundation, even when you start back with Abraham, that faith has always been how it, how it has operated with God. The faith is always at the core of what makes a person right with God. That circumcision, yes, Paul says, yeah, it was totally important. He's not arguing that it wasn't important. He's saying, yeah, it's important, but it's important as a sign and as a symbol of what the reality was in Abraham's heart as a sign and symbol. And so when God says anyone who's not circumcised is to be cut off, it's because anyone who wasn't circumcised was someone who didn't care enough to try and follow God, who didn't have enough faith to do what God was asking. And that's why it was a, an issue of the heart. It was always that. 
Um, some would say, and I think there's, there's parallels to that, that baptism today becomes the parallel to that. Is baptism the thing that saves you? No. Um, but it is the method by which God uses to bring us into his covenant people. It is the thing that he has set before us that, that declares what he is doing in our hearts and shows and, and is through that that we kind of enter into this covenant people. Um, but, but it has always been, Paul says, actually, all the way back with Abraham, an issue not just of the physical but of the heart. And by the way, he does not pull that out of thin air. I, I, I misled you a little bit because I stepped over a couple passages. This is not the first place in A.D. 50 that someone says that circumcision is an issue of the heart. Actually, the first place we know of that happening is right here with Moses. In uh, Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says to the people, God chose you as his covenant people and therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4 will say the same thing to the people of Israel. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. Even bigger than that is Deuteronomy 36 where, where Moses actually says, you can't really do that. God is going to be the one to do that in you that God is going to be the one to give you a new kind of heart that belongs to him. So this is not a new idea. God has always been after this. What was the greatest commandment that he gave to Moses? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He has always been after not just your soul, but your body and your mind and every aspect of who, who you are. He wants all of those things. And, and the reason this matters is because there's two ways to really, really get this whole thing wrong. And the first way is to think that you belong to God because of all the great and good things that you've done in your life. That you're a good enough person that you're a nice enough person and therefore God's going God's to accept you. And God wants you to be with him and he'll bring you in because of that. And, and the Bible speaks uh, strongly against that. Um, that, you, that you cannot do enough good things to be righteous in God's sight. That you don't have that within you. Um, no matter how many good things you do, it will not be able to outweigh the sinfulness in me, the sinfulness in you, and so those things can't be right. The other wrong way to, to view those things, though, is to believe that as long as I check all of the boxes, then it really doesn't matter what I do with my life. I'm covered. I'm kind of in. And for the Jewish people, that was as long as I'm born into a Jewish family, and as long as I've undergone circumcision, and as long as I don't eat pig or shellfish, and as long as I observe the festivals and holy days, then it kind of doesn't matter how I live because, I mean, I, I've covered all my bases there. And for us today, it, it looks more like as long as I go to church every week and as long as I don't, you know, maybe drink or cuss and, and as long as I'm, I'm really nice to people and, and as long as I, I make sure that I, oh, I, I said the prayer at church camp and asked Jesus into my heart, as long as I did that and as long as I got baptized, then I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of covered. And, and it's really, it's possible to check all the right boxes and still have a heart that is stubborn and resistant and does not know God, does not love God. And God, God says about all of those things, baptism and your sinner's prayer and your church attendance, that's garbage unless I've got your heart. From the beginning, that's what he's wanted. From the beginning, that's what he's gone after. And faith 
that places itself, places its trust in God, places specifically for us in what he has done for us in Jesus Christ and trusts that he is enough and says, I want you to have all of me. I want you to have all of my heart. I want to give every bit of me to you and trust you with my whole life. That is what God has always wanted and that is what truly marks the people who truly belong to him. Now, three more minutes. This gets a little fuzzy, right? You can see why people really liked the idea of circumcision and like ritual purity laws and don't eat that meat, but you can eat this meat. Because in that case, it was really easy to know who was in and who was out, right? But, but if we start saying that it's a matter of the heart and a circumcision of the heart, how are you supposed to know who's in or who's out? How are you supposed to know if you're actually belonging to God or not? Well, I think actually Paul kind of tells us. Um, I mentioned to you that there are three different places where he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Galatians 5, Galatians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. But in every one of those places, he then goes in right afterwards and tells you what does actually matter. So in Galatians 6.15, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but what counts is a new creation. What counts is that the Holy Spirit is making you into something new. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 18-19. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but what counts is keeping the commandments of God. And then in Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. What counts is faith working itself through love. So what Paul says, what, what counts is a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit so that by faith it begins to love God and love people in a brand new way. And that's how you know. That's, how, that's, that's the marker by whether you know you belong to him or not. Not because you've done a really good job of that and God's keeping score and going, okay, you're good enough. But because when you are made into a new person and you are loving God and loving people well and seeking to pursue Him in holiness and trying to grow after Him, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit has come and done a work in your heart. That the circumcision of the heart has actually taken place in our lives. And and so this is the question by which we gauge ourselves. Do I see that in me? Uh, or have I just spent my life checking all the boxes and calling myself good? Does God have my rituals? Does God have my traditions? Does God have my good deeds? Or does God have my heart? And that's the question that I hope you're able to answer. And, and if you're unsure, that I hope you're um, brave enough to ask someone to help you walk through and think through those things. Um, because this is where Jesus comes in. And no matter how bad you've been or how wrong things have gone, that he has the ability to make all of that new in you and make all of that different and better once again. And that's what we want you to experience um, here and in the rest of your life. So let me pray and we'll wrap up. Dear God, it is uh, weirdly really simple and also kind of complex and complicated. And, and so I just ask for your, your word to sink in deep in us. I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and reveal our hearts to us and show us where we have just been playing a game or where we have truly given ourselves to you. I pray for those who are wondering, Lord, that you would lead them to truth and, and help them to, um, to pursue it and to speak uh, 
um, speak to someone to speak to you, um, that they might know you and, and not live in guilt or shame, Lord, but that you would allow them to live in the freedom and joy of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We are done, and there is nothing else, right? Anything else to do? Thing? Okay. We're set. Hope you guys can make it to the Christmas party on Sunday. But other than that, hang out for a little bit.